right. Well, good evening. It's, it's good to be with all of you and fun to be here after watching online all year. I've been a part of one of the, uh, the virtual groups. So let's begin our final week of studying Mark with four profound, theologically rich words. You ready for these? So what? Now what? And I want to begin there because how will our immersion in this account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the only God-man, the singular Savior and Redeemer who has washed us clean, has made a home in all who believe, how will our study guide us forward, compel us outward? How will it invite us towards a deeper intimacy with the only loving Lord, Jesus? These are the themes that I want to uh, explore with you tonight as we close out, really, our, our study that we've been in this year. Now, our study of Mark ends somewhat on what could be a really discouraging note. Um, you might have seen this in chapter 16, 8, where it says, this is where Mark ends the gospel, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. But we know. We know that this isn't the end of the story. From the rest of the Gospels, from the rest of the New Testament, we know that they didn't remain silent and they didn't stay afraid. And in fact, we would we can know that we're here today, we're here at New Life in April 2021, because those first century believers, including these women, were steadfast. They courageously went out with the gospel. They spread it. They taught the Holy Scriptures. And they made disciple-making disciples. We're descendants of that, if you will. So I want to begin with these thoughts of, so what, now what? Because what do we need to remain steadfast to Jesus and the teaching of God's word? What threatens to silence you? What tempts you to shrink back, to turn away from things that you have known and believed? You know, it's not that unusual these days. Check out the world of podcasts, blogs. It's not that unusual to hear of Christians now changing their minds on biblical, historical Christianity. It's also not that unusual to hear of Christian leaders who have been teaching said biblical, historic Christianity and then the revelations come out that their, their lives <clears throat> were a mess of sin. Sometimes I look around, maybe you're like me, I, I can look around and I just think the darkness is winning. Um, it just seems like it's too, it's too large, it's too loud. Like, I need hope. And maybe you feel that way sometimes too. So our passage this week, sisters, Mark 15, 33 to 16, 8, is going to give us that hope because we're going to see through this passage that it really explains the Christian life and it explains your life and my life. Like our human years are going to follow generally, but also in specific to each one of us kinds of ways, our earthly life is going to follow the process that Jesus goes through with his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, we know that the resurrection is going to have the final word one day, right? When He's going to make all things right when he returns. But while we live on this earth as believers who are alive in him, we will also experience many deaths, 
burial, and resurrections. And as we walk through this, I hope it's going to help you as it helps me as we think about how to navigate the pain celebrations that we have in this life. As we understand this trajectory of Jesus' life and how our life is going to follow in its same pattern, it guides us when we're scared, when we're overwhelmed. It provides a map for us where we just don't know where to turn. So let's dig in. I'm going to begin here and just read uh, Mark 15, 33 to 39. And when the sixth hour, or noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, or 3 p.m., And at that ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now it says that some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Now think about that. These people heard Jesus, they saw Jesus, but they completely misinterpreted what he was saying. He wasn't calling on Elijah. He was calling on his father. Something to take note of. But it says that then somebody ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to Jesus to drink, and they said, wait, let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down. Then Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last. This is when he gives up his spirit to the Father. And it says at that moment that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. A Gentile saw Jesus, listened to Jesus, and he interpreted it rightly. This was the Son of God. So what happened on the cross? We've just been thinking about this in a fresh way with our celebration of Easter, but what happened? Well, let's start here that Jesus wasn't just hung between two criminals. He became a criminal, and died a criminal's death in a horrifically torturous, shameful way. His crimes, they're ugly. His crimes were self-righteousness, gossip, lying, sexual immorality, sexual abuse, stealing, cheating, manipulating, spinning the truth to avoid responsibility, binging, oppressing, racial hatred, deception, Pride, selfish ambition, shaming and slandering others when their views on the news headlines meant something different. Jealousy of others, trafficking of children, murdering the helpless and the innocent, political idolatry, making pornography, viewing pornography, emotional affairs, taunting the vulnerable and the weak, ignoring suffering, and looking the other way. Because you see, As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. For me and my sins. For you and your sins. He became our sin, sisters. And he had to face the Father like this. On the cross, his Father, loving, holy, tender, looks at his Son now covered with our sin. He he also sees how sin has broken our hearts, distorted our minds, and damaged our bodies. Now, what's happening in this? Jesus is on the cross, bearing the weight of sin. How does the Father respond? Let me quote for us from the book, When God Weeps, 
why our sufferings matter to God. Quote, of course the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this, but the divine pair have an agreement and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if he is personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure sinks drowning in raw liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind explodes in a single direction. Even as the beloved son cries out loudly, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The son stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down a reply. The Trinity had planned it. The son had endured it. The spirit enabled it through Jesus. The father rejected the son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, died. The father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. Close quote. And Jesus' final act, his final words, he willingly gives up his spirit and he says, It is finished. Something radical now, supernatural, is made possible through this finished work, through Jesus, new life. And with the other Gospels and with what Mark writes, we see that the whole earth or creation responds to what is happening. Darkness starts losing its grip. The curse of sin on humanity is being pushed back. What happens? Well, that temple, that temple curtain, which was thick, rips from top to bottom. What's happening? A new pattern of worship and being made right with God is being instituted. We're not going to have to go to a temple or have priests mediating for us. No. Rightness, closeness with God is now going to come through Jesus. The barriers that had been there between God and women, the sick, non-Jews, non-priests, non-priests, non-Levites, um, The weak and poor, all those barriers come tumbling down. The centurion believes a Gentile enemy is converted and becomes a loved son and a crucified. Joseph gathers courage and goes to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. This Jewish leader begins to publicly identify with Jesus. This leader who was a member of the very religious body that was used by God to send Jesus to his, his execution. The curse is being reversed. Change is happening. And the other Gospels tell us earthquakes were happening. Graves were opening up. The dead were rising. So what? Now what? So what? Because Jesus died, sisters. We don't ultimately die. And we don't have to remain dead in our sin anymore. One of the commentators wrote this, the only way for us to be able to live was for him to die. The only way for us to be saved was for Jesus to not save himself. But how? Maybe you've asked this, how does this work? How do we access this life? Well, you might know the story of after the Passover meal, the Last Supper as we know it, Jesus has a walk-in talk on the way to Gethsemane. You see that in the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, 16, 17. Jesus is walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, and in 15, 
He gives this beautiful picture to help his disciples understand what resurrection life, what unity with him is going to look like. And he gives this beautiful picture of him being the true vine. Now, this isn't a vine, but it'll give us a little bit of a picture. He says, I'm the true vine, in so many words, full of life, fruit bearing out of me. You, you're the branches. Now, here's the thing. When we are not connected to Christ, we are just a dead, lifeless, fruitless branch. This is how the Bible would describe us. There's nothing that this branch can do to resurrect itself. But here's what Jesus says. In me, through the cross, you as a branch can become united to me. And actually, in the world of vineyards, if you have a vine stalk, that's actually how new kinds of grapes are made, new kinds of wines are made. Branches are taken off of other vines, they're cut off, and they take it to a fruitful stalk. How do they, how do they get joined? They both have to be wounded. They have to be cut just right so they fit into each other. And an amazing thing happens. This branch, dead and lifeless, is not just glued, it's inserted into the vine, it's sealed with an ointment, and it has to remain there. It has to abide there. Does that sound familiar? John 15. And in the world of vineyards, an amazing thing happens. Over time, this dead branch begins to take on the life of the vine. It begins to sprout leaves and eventually fruit. Jesus, our living, true vine, through the cross has opened the door through his wounds for us to be able to be united to him. And his life overcomes our deadness. His life becomes ours and surges in us, allowing fruit to be born. Sisters, this is what's possible now for us because of the cross. As Paul said in Romans 6, 5, that we become planted or united with Jesus in his death, then we are also united to him in his resurrection. New life. But that branch must leave where it was to be joined to the new vine. Now, it's not just in salvation that that branch, dead, dies to what it was and has to be joined. But as believers now, daily dying is a part of the normal Christian life. Carrie Silver talked about this beautifully in her talk several weeks ago. But we want to consider this, that the path of being a follower of Jesus, of being a disciple, is death to self initially as we come to faith, but it's also daily as we put to death what is unholy. Because our deadness, our sin nature, it's still exerting influence. You might call this a cross-shaped life, centered on Christ. The Apostle Paul taught about this consistently, 2 Corinthians 4, 11 to 12. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. Paul was saying in so many words, I will gladly die to this, die to this, let go, let go of this, so that life of Christ will flourish in you. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Love, sisters. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that one died for all and therefore all died. 
And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. Sounds glorious, doesn't it? And we would say, yeah, we believe this to be true. But we resist it, don't we? We want the benefits of Jesus, and we want to maintain some private real estate. We want him to be Lord, but not completely. Maybe it's in our relationships, our dreams, our expectations of how life is supposed to go, our reputation, our finances, our priorities, time, whatever it might be. This is, in part, isn't this why the disciples scattered in the garden? This isn't what they thought they were signing up for. No. And, and you know, I see this so much in myself, in so many realms. I I see it in myself as a ministry leader, um, as a ministry leader who gets to do things like this, teach and have some influence. But I can resist serving. I can resist foot washing. I can resist doing the hidden works of Jesus. What about you? Are you holding back, sisters? In what areas of your life do you openly or or maybe secretly say, Jesus, I'm yours, but not here. I I surrender this and that, but this, I'm going to keep this in my pocket. I want your new life to control me, Jesus, 75% of the time. We've all been there in one way or another. Now, before you start maybe sinking down or taking this on yourself, pause, consider, focus. We're not here to focus on how we don't follow Jesus. We are here because we've had so many people ahead of us in this faith race who have gone this path before. They've honestly looked at themselves. They've pressed forward with Jesus And as it says in Hebrews 12, because we have that cloud of witnesses all around us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles. Let's do it. Let's throw it off. But the writer in Hebrews says, but let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Don't photobomb yourself, Ellen, in somebody else's lane. Stay in your lane with your eyes fixed on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Eyes fixed on Jesus, sisters. Yes, can we be those that daily die to self so that we're willing to do some honest self-examination with our eyes fixed on Jesus, who's already endured the cross, who's already scorned its shame, who's already sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's consider him, him sisters, He's the one that endured so much opposition from sinners. If we consider him, we're not going to grow weary, and we're not going to lose heart. We won't shrink back. Let's gaze on him together. How might we even do that as we finish Bible study and we head into the summer? Some home groups will be continuing. Maybe you'll take walks with each other, uh, meet up for a cup of coffee. How can we grow in light of this idea of daily dying to help each other look upon the loveliness of Jesus who is worth it? To look at him more than we look at our sin. To consider him even more than we look at ourselves as those crackable, fragile clay jars. Can we look to Jesus together? Remember, Paul said it's love 
of Christ, the love of Christ that controls us. It's God's kindness that leads us to turn away from self and turn to Jesus. This is the normal Christian life. So Jesus' death and our death and many deaths. Now, this, what about Jesus' burial and our burial? Let me read Mark 15, 46 to 47. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking Jesus down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, as you see in Mark, you might have picked up on this. He's naming all these people, a lot of witnesses. He wants the reader to be sure that it's clear that Jesus really did die. There's a lot of witnesses that saw this. But have you ever considered what happened from the time that Jesus gave up his spirit, having said it was finished, until the resurrection? Have you ever considered that? Well, there's mystery about this, and there's even different thoughts among Bible scholars, but I think there's two clues here. Remember Luke 23, the criminal on the cross? It says, Jesus, will you remember me? And Jesus says, I promise you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not on Sunday, today. And then think about his last words. It is finished. His work was done. The payment was accomplished. So it would seem, perhaps, this is where some scholars go, that that separation from the Father fully ended. He was communing with the Father after he died. What was that paradise exactly? We don't know. But we know that the work of Jesus had been completely done, and that convert on the cross was now enjoying paradise with the with Jesus Christ. Something I want to just suggest to you is I, I think Holy Saturday can... Um, the idea of Saturday in between the death and resurrection of Christ, it can invite us, even help us, to consider to live hidden in Christ, like to have expectant hearts, waiting, wondering, anticipating the resurrection to come, which we know, because we live on this side of, of Jesus' resurrection, but, but also in the midst of our daily dying, like being on the lookout for when is resurrection going to happen, uh, God calls you to lay down your life in a situation. Well, because of Christ, there's going to be some form of a new life, new resurrection that's going to come. When we're on the lookout for it, when we know it's coming in one way or another, at some point or another, it can help us refuse to take an early exit ramp off of dying to self. Anyone else been there? It can help us to resist the urge to draw the attention that we're maybe in the tomb. We're in that daily dying tomb, and sometimes, if you're like me, like, we want to draw attention to that, like, oh, I am dying for the Lord over here. No. As my mentor, Roberta, has discipled me, she says, no, when we are dying in Christ, we are in that tomb, but because of Christ, we know that tomb is a womb, and it's going to birth life. As we enter into Christ's death on a daily basis, It's going to rise up somewhere with new fruit and new life. And I think about my friends, Bruce and Deb. This couple lived a somewhat hidden, Holy Saturday yet Easter-infused life. For decades, they loved whoever was in front of them. That was their lifestyle. They loved their kids, their grandkids, 
college kids, youth, young adults, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of young people. They didn't write any books. I don't think they ever spoke at any uh, conferences. Uh, they weren't podcasting. They definitely weren't going cray-o-cray on social media. They loved the people that God kept putting in front of them, quietly and extravagantly. So about a month ago, a month ago tomorrow when it was found out that Bruce had COVID and he had it bad, well, and was going downhill, there was an outpouring of life coming out of love and support. And then two weeks ago tomorrow, when he crossed that doorway into the presence of Jesus, he died and rose. There were so many testimonies and postings of this couple's, what I would call, Easter-empowered, fruitful love. So many stories were coming out. And I look at Bruce and Deb, alive in Christ, hidden in many ways, but they were planted in the death of Jesus and the burial and resurrection in their daily quiet lives. And it has been loud since then with the beauty that has been coming out in light of Bruce's life and together what Bruce and Deb were as a couple. And really that leads us now to our final thought about resurrection, Jesus's resurrection and ours. Well, Mark goes on to explain, uh, as we see at the end of our passage for today, in, in chapter 16, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, buy spices. They, didn't, they weren't going to need those spices, but they didn't know that. They come to anoint Jesus' body, and their main concern actually wasn't a concern. They were thinking, how, how will we get in to anoint his body? We've got this huge stone in the way. Well, they get there, the stone's been moved. An angel greets them and says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He rose. This has become so familiar to me. And honestly, I don't even think about it sometimes, so it was good for me to be immersed in this passage. He rose just as he said. Why is the resurrection a big deal? Like, what does it really mean? It means that it's all true. What Jesus said is true is true. The wisdom of God is at work. The curse of the fall is being reversed through his resurrection. And our three enemies, sisters, they have been beaten Sin. I don't know what you're dealing with. Secret sins, struggles, temptations, but sin has been paid for, and though we still wrestle with it and feel its, feel its attack, the day's coming when it won't exist in our lives at all. We're on a trajectory, sisters, of resurrection. What about Satan, the prince of darkness? He has been struck, and while he still has power, He still is exerting influence. The day is coming when he will be crushed for good. And finally, death. We still walk through death on this life. But the day is coming when death will be dead. And for those of us who are in Christ, joined to this living vine, we will live forever. We are united 
planted in his death and resurrection, and nothing can separate us. Nothing can detach us. Not if we're abiding in the life of Jesus by faith. There's nothing out of reach. Nothing out of reach at all for a living, reigning, resurrected King Jesus. And we can have that hope. We can have comfort, sisters, that as a faithful shepherd, he's going to carry us in his arms from where you sit tonight on April 27th. He's going to carry you in his arms into the next world. He's going to be with you with whatever you're going to face. He knows. He knows that this life is filled with pain, many deaths, troubles, and so many scary realities. But if we live like this is the only life we have, 30 years, 50 years, 80 years, 90 years, even 100, if we live like this is all we have, there is so much at stake, sisters. This is just a blip. This is just a vapor. There's more to come. So let me... Let me begin to wrap things up. Let's return to where we started, where Mark leaves us in chapter 16, 8. Remember, with that, he comments on the, the women's initial response to the resurrection. Can we once again, with our eyes on Christ, also consider, are we living as if the resurrection is really true? Or are we living as if we just get this go-around? So we've got to make it count. Got to make it count for what we want. Are we embracing, trusting, receiving this normal Christian life, which is new life in Jesus, death, hiddenness, resurrection. New life, death, hiddenness, resurrection. That's our normal Christian life, and it's taking us somewhere. It's taking us towards the Lord. Because our Father... He loves us so much. He loves his son so much. He wants us to become more and more like Christ. And he has planned. He has planned specific circumstances to shape each one of us into the image of his son more and more, that we would grow in Christ-likeness. These are the moments. You might be in the midst of one of those tonight. These are the moments, the situations the relationships that cause us to come face-to-face with this. My will, his will. What I want, what I know you want. To be a Christian, to be in Christ, means that we have been planted in him, and his life working in us, his life bearing fruit in us, is going to move us towards not my will but yours be done. And maybe we don't say that initially, but we get there a little bit quicker. Our desires change a little bit more for the Lord's will over our will. Our faith grows a little bit more in believing that God's way really is the best way. And the best of all in that, we grow closer in this abiding intimacy with Jesus that shepherd who's holding us. I love how David Paulson says in his book, God's grace in your suffering. He comments on kind of this dual relationship of desolation and consolation, of 
this amazing resurrection life hope existing right there with our kind of messy, painful, confusing lives. He says it this way, immortality will speak the final word, but not yet. Christ rewrites the script of your life, but you will die on the way to life. He will walk with you, but you will walk through the valley of death on the way to where Jesus lives. Resurrection is the center point of the gospel, what the gift of the Holy Spirit is about, uniting us to the Savior of the world. You know, after a long explanation and pastoral preaching that Paul gives to the believers in Corinth about all that we're talking about, about the resurrection of Christ, he, he concludes it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 58. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends this whole section with this booming, I think, crescendo. He says, therefore, my beloved sisters and brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Ellen, I don't feel very steadfast tonight. And actually, I've been moving. I don't feel like abounding in the works of the Lord. You know what? If that's where you're at, the Lord knows that. And I want to just give you a beautiful word of encouragement from a very wise pastor, Charles Spurgeon. And on that verse, steadfast, immovable, abounding, here's what he said. He said, if we derive our motives for Christian labor or steadfastness or staying the course, if we derive our motives for this from the things we see, our spirit will oscillate from enthusiasm to coldness. It will rise and fall with the circumstances around us. But we have gazed into another world where the resurrection will bring with it our reward. He says, We're not fighting for a dead man's cause. We have a living, reigning king. And his name is Jesus. And if you are in Christ, you are united to him forever. If you are not in Christ, the invitation is there to come to him and unite yourself to him by faith. Let's pray. We are not fighting. We are not believing in a dead man's cause, Jesus. We have you, our living, resurrected King. And for those, Lord, who are lonely and discouraged and disheartened tonight, we have a faithful friend with us for eternity. For those, Lord, who are just in broken-hearted places in their relationships. We have a loving bridegroom waiting for us to enjoy that wedding feast. For those, Lord, who are just confused, needing wisdom, unsure of what to do, we have Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You are with us, Lord. And for those who are maybe just tired, weary, 
we have a gentle and lowly Savior who humbly scoops us up, carries us, and you are going to carry us through this life until we cross through that doorway and we are in paradise with you, our Lord Jesus. So we thank you for this year of study and we pray, Lord, that you will now help us most of all to to receive your invitation to draw near to you and to let that bear out in whatever ways you would have your presence to change us. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We do not fight for a dead man's cause. We do not believe in a religious leader who's still in the tomb. We have a living, resurrected Lord, and we will follow you, Jesus, alongside of each other by the power of the Spirit and with your love. Amen.